Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the Ask Your Industry podcast, episode 74. For those of you new to the show, I'm comedian Simon Kane, and this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, the live circuit. Toby Haddock is a comedian based in Manchester who has been performing for more than 20 years. He started on a whim by chance and then founded a comedy club called Excess Malarkey, which The Guardian has described as a great example of how a club should be run. 20 years later, that club still runs on a weekly basis, and he is still involved, as well as running the New Material Nights at the Manchester Comedy Store, and is the regular MC at the 99 Club in London, as well as many other credits outside of straight stand-up, including writing, podcasting, acting, and voiceover work. I got him on to talk about a Manchester scene, as well as how to build an audience using podcasting, and how he found his voice in comedy. I think this podcast would be good for any newer comedians interested in how the circuit has evolved or a local fan of comedy in Manchester who wants to know more about the behind the scenes of their favourite clubs or even someone who is thinking about starting a podcast and isn't sure if it's for them. On a personal note, I'd like to say that if you are looking at starting a podcast, you should just do a pilot that you're never planning on releasing and that will tell you more about if your idea has any legs or if you're going to get bored of it than any bit of advice you're going to get from anyone. This podcast goes live on the 17th of February 2017, and tomorrow, the 18th of February 2017, I am hosting our third live Q&A podcast in Leicester. If you can make it, please do, because it's super important that we get good numbers in order to come back next year. Last year's one went amazingly well, and also it stops me looking insane to the guests who I seem to have careered into coming into a room where it's just me they're going to be talking to. The panel is with four Midlands promoters who are going to be talking about the scene, the circuit and taking your questions live. So please come with questions if you want to ask anything or email me slash give them to me before we start and I will make sure that I try and get through as many of them as possible during the hour podcast recording. If you're still around on Sunday the 19th of February 2017, I'm doing my work in progress show at the Leicester Comedy Festival which is called Laughter is the Best Placebo and it's at the exchange at 9pm. Both shows are free slash donate what you want on the way out. 
So if you can support me in either of those things, that would be amazing. If you can't make it, please do pass on the information to someone you think can. Thank you very much for any and all help there. Anyway, if you're new here, please hit that subscribe button. So if you're old here, please think about giving us an honest review in iTunes. And either way, please join the Facebook group, which is called RC Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, of course. Without any more delays, this is Toby Hedoke. I started a night called Excess Malarkey in Manchester, uh, which will be 20 years ago this September. September 2017 will be its 20th anniversary. And I had no ambitions to start a comedy club. I was a sort of jobbing, you know, paid 15 maybe level comic, you know, doing doing it now and again. And my brother-in-law played in a pub in a band in an irish band at a pub called scruffy murphy's of course it was and scruffy murphy's wanted to do a comedy night called murphy's malarkey um the landlord said to my brother-in-law i want to do a comedy night my brother-in-law went oh i know a comedian and uh, that was me and i went down and i met this guy and he wanted to do it and he wanted to do it properly he had a sort of budget he wanted to he wanted to not charge though so the budget basically paid for the headline act everything else we had to do it for free and i figured well you know that's okay it'd be good practice for me and it might last for eight weeks and that was the original plan takes up to christmas whatever it was maybe it was a bit more than eight weeks but for some reason i think i thought it would last eight to ten weeks that and then we'd review it and we reviewed it after eight to ten weeks or whatever and i said well i'd love to carry on but i'd love to charge because the problem is we have people sort of just wandering in so we charged 50p and that was the making of the club because everybody who paid 50p looked at the stage so all they did they looked to see what they were paying for about Prior to that, about four weeks in, I'd said every joke I'd ever said as a comedian and had to go on. And I'm quite lazy. So instead of spending that day writing what I'd do that night, which anybody who's run out of material would sensibly do, I, I went on stage not quite knowing what I was doing and came off 15 minutes later having got away with it. And I've largely <laughs> done that every Tuesday ever since. And so I, did, I, I had no ambition. I think I've never... I think the reason I've done OK is because... Well, I've done better as a comic than as an actor. I've I've great ambitions as an actor. It's what I've always wanted to do, and I've I've kept doing that, you know, next to next to being a comic. With a comic, I sort of because I sort of had no ambition because I didn't. Um, I looked at really good comics and didn't think I could necessarily do that. I guess. Um, uh, I just sort of muddled along, and because I muddled along with no expectation. Similarly, with the club, I muddled along, and I just thought. Well, so long as the people in tonight come next week, I've done okay. And the two things that would make the people who came tonight come next week is if the acts are all good, but not necessarily good as in, you know, Barnstorm was on a Friday, Saturday night, because it's Tuesday, it's slightly different, if, if everybody's got something about them. But also for the acts, if they have the best chance of doing what they do without having to change what they do because they think the audience wants something else so therefore i was quite as a compare i was i was quite harsh in those early days it had to be don't have to be now because we've got a regular audience been coming for so long but in those days i was quite harsh and i remember kicking groups of eight or nine or ten out and giving them their money back and going go i'll give you your money back go because i want these people to have a good evening and i want these people to come back and that's sort of what happened and and it just sort of snowballed and we had a you know we had a peak you know where for three four or five years we were selling out every every week the comedy circuit has changed since then but we still kept our head above water 
um, I mean, it's run on a non-profit making model so I don't expect to take anything out of it we occasionally put a little bit aside if we if we have a particularly good night that usually goes on a new cable or um, something like that but it's not a you know it's not a it's not a it's not a money-making thing but it's it's rewarded me in a lot of other different ways why was it not for profit was it just because you had no ambition anyway so it didn't well uh, I coined the phrase not for profit after many years of not making any money out of it and so we'd sort of say at the end of the night look the reason this is a good night is because you don't pay very much even now they pay three pounds for members and five pounds for non-members back in the day I remember having one bill that was I think it was a pound and it was Dom Carroll Kevin Gildee Peter Kay three headliners for a pound boom and I just remember at the end of one night sort of going look the, the reason is it's, it's you know we don't we don't make a profit we're not that was never part of the deal that was never part of of what I sort of set out to do for me it was all about stage time and things like that and as it went on you know I'm fortunate I do other, I do lots of other things and I've got this sort of mosaic of a CV that that earns me a living so if it means that sometimes I have to give excess th- 30 quid to cover the acts bills and sometimes I might get 50 quid that I can take home with me sometimes but but invariably it's fairly because I have because I have guys who work on the door who aren't waged either but if we do well they get a bit and if we don't I apologize and they go that's not what we do it for so so if there is money to go it goes on you know the guys who do the door and the tech and all that sort of thing but we have a fairly flexible arrangement so it wasn't intended to be not for profit but that's one of the glorious side effects of it and a testament to my business acumen <laughs> Well, the, the you mentioned that the circuit has changed since you started, as it would have done over twenty years. Yeah. Why do you? I mean, you mentioned before we started. Why do you think it would? Would if, do you think it would be possible to start a night like that now, or do you think the way the circuit has changed? Well, not unless we've done something terribly wrong. As I say, we do okay. We um, on a Tuesday night, we regularly get, but you know, sixty, seventy plus. Sometimes you know we can we got 120s 30s and sometimes even the 200s if we have a special guest we regularly did 150 every tuesday when we're in fallowfield which then was a very student area next to a very busy student halls of residence now we stayed in fallowfield for a while after that peak and i thought maybe we'd done something wrong but i noticed the students in the halls of residence for example where we're at one point we were directly opposite them they left when i did I left the club at 11 o'clock to go home. They left their halls of residence at 11 o'clock with bottles of Wicked and what have you to get on the bus to go into town. So what students who were a big part of our audience were doing was entertaining themselves at home, i.e. on YouTube, the internet, whatever, for free, getting supermarket booze, which is cheaper than buying pub booze, and then at 11 o'clock going out with enough money in their pocket to get the cheaper shots or, or, or whatever, where to those places where people are drunk enough to maybe have sex with each other. That, that's, that's, that's me psychoanalyzing students, but I think it's a reasonable one. Um, so I think that demographic was sort of slightly watered down. We moved venues a couple of times because venues got closed down. It's amazing how quickly who say, oh, I used to love that club of yours ago. It hasn't gone anywhere because newspaper coverage is very good at going, that club has lost its home. It's not then very good at going, but it's all right, it's here now. So you have to battle against things like that. But, but I, nonetheless, I think even if we'd stayed in the same place, you know, the internet is such that it's, if, you really, if you desperately want to find out where excess malarkey is and if it's still happening, you only have to type two words. And, and I think, and, and I see lots of, lots of places also, 
you know mid midweek I, I sometimes worry and go god we we're not you know in our heyday and then i go to other places and go oh no you know it's it it is it is tough and some big clubs at weekends i remember talking to somebody who was in charge of a, a big club and this was on the monday and they said we haven't sold any tickets for Saturday. Now they'll pay, they have a slightly different business model. They'll paper it. They take the bar money, all of that sort of thing. Slightly different. They have an infrastructure. I don't. I work on a night by night basis. I have a budget for the night, um, which is also dependent on footfall. I have to factor in the footfall to pay the amount I spend on the acts, and sometimes that 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 works. Sometimes it doesn't. But either way, I've still got to pay for it all on that night. Uh, and I don't get anything to do with bar sales or any of that sort of business. And I think I, I think I look back and I think I didn't realise at the time how lo we did a good job. We, we the, the club was great, and uh, but it was also great because it was so busy and uh, and people would get turned away. And of course, if people get turned away, that means they come down early next time. And and I think it was just a time pre the big internet boom. I mean, this was a time when you know I used to. I used to have to go to a photocopier to photocopy the, the the posters onto big luminous A3 posters because I thought that's what would get the extra people in. You know, I don't even, don't even bother with that sort of thing now. It's it's all about the internet. It's all about mailing lists and, and, and visibility and Twitter and Facebook. It's totally different. But also, I think there is a less of an appetite for live stuff because people watch stuff for free in the same way that I used to be a telly addict you know I would video whatever was on the telly at night if I was gigging and that sort of thing now I I mean I don't watch terrestrial television if there's something I fancy I might pick it up later on iPlayer but the, 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 our viewing and consumer habits have totally changed to say that there's less of an appetite for life do you are you speaking specifically about Manchester or are you speaking nationally um, interesting because I mean, I've been a regular MC at the 99 Club in Leicester Square, which has a great footfall, but that's a very touristy area. And that's not a club like most clubs that I know that has a sort of regular clientele, or at least a semi-regular clientele. Because it's in the heart of Leicester Square, it's a slightly different thing. That always does very well. But we're still talking, you know, 70, 80, 90 people on a Wednesday. So actually the fact that excess in a sort of much less footfally area of Manchester's getting the same on a Tuesday shows that we're doing, you know, we're doing well. And the 99 Club is a great club. So I don't know about the London thing. I mean, I certainly know that some gigs that I used to play aren't there anymore. And some gigs that I do play are quieter. And I mean, I remember when Jongler's Camden, as was, was big and buzzing. And I also remember when it was, you know, three tables and 20 squaddies on Groupon, you know. So, but, yeah, I, th I, think, I, think, it, I think it's a general trend that people don't see live entertainment as necessarily first of all also i think there are a lot of there's a small number of very visible comedians on things like eight out of ten cats and and mock week and those who have a profile accorded to them by their television appearances who then tour and if you if, if you're if you've got a comedy budget for the year as a punter you might go well i'll go and see that person who i know even though tickets for that are slightly more expensive than my local comedy club because i know what i'm getting and i know i like that person that's reasonable so people are maybe a bit more especially in times of economic trouble are a bit more conservative with their spend in that they'd rather spend a little more on something they know rather than spend once or twice than spend a little less four or five times on on a blank as far as they they're concerned a blank canvas what's really interesting for me about that is i've done a lot of promoter interviews in london partly because i lived there and it was easy for me and this is my attempt to branch out and do it in different cities to find out what people think and whenever i've spoken to someone who isn't a london promoter as such 
and I've asked them what they think of their city versus nationally, they automatically compare it to London. And I, and I find it interesting that that's... Because obviously the, the industry from an outsider point of view, and c certainly from an insider point of view to an extent, is very London-centric. But do you, do you kind of model what you're doing then on, on London stuff? Or do you... What's, what, no, what I think... I know, in fact, I think I was quite surprised when I, I, I started working in London, which I don't do an awful lot, because to be perfectly honest, it's not really worth it for me. And even when I, I, I did actually live in London for a short while, when I got married, one of my other non-profit making exercises, and I, I still found myself gigging mostly in the Northwest. I mean, you know, I had roots here, mates here, kids here, that sort of thing. Because actually the, 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 the London gigs aren't as well paid. They pay you for a weekend in Manchester, I think based on the idea that you've come from London, so we'll need somewhere to, you know, need to drive there, you need somewhere to stay, blah, 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 and that's all sort of factored in. Whereas if you live in, if you live down the road in Chalton, as I do, you're getting paid the same as an act from London, but you're not having to factor in all of those extra things. Um, so I think wages are, here in Manchester are set to sort of lure people from the London base and unless you're doubling up in London the wages for gigs are actually not that great I also found and I still this which is why I'm a very strong advocate of the Manchester circuit which I think is great and for the first 10 years of my career I'm not a driver I I existed purely on doing gigs that I could get to from Manchester by public transport so you know Manchester Liverpool Sheffield and I was gigging every night of the week you know, sometimes it'd be a pub up in Withington for I'd headline for thirty quid. That gave me experience of doing longer sets. At thirty quid's not bad for a Monday night and blah blah. blah. And then and then you know, say comparing the Frog at the weekend or Baby Blue in Liverpool or Last Laugh in Sheffield. And I and I, uh, then they have their satellite gigs as well. But I, I was gigging all the time, and I didn't feel the need to do London. And when I did London, which I thought would be this great sort of Shangri La that I'd have, especially talking like I do and doing the sort of comedy that I do uh, I thought you know uh, oh I, I, I will finally have landed and and, and I found I, I, I didn't find that about that circuit at all I don't, it's nothing wrong with it but it's um, but I certainly think that uh, that the circuit here holds its own and has a slightly different character in that I think there is general progression and there is general gen genuine room for oddballs on more established nights in London it strikes me that there are two very distinct circuits uh, the open spot circuit and the circuit for established acts that's because London can pick and choose that's because London can have three headliners on I do the 99 club as I say every Wednesday and the bill is always astonishing because nobody's doing much on a Wednesday night so I'm there with the delightful prospect of you know comparing Mike Wilmot Ed Gamble Nathan Caton you know acts of that quality bam 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 Felicity Ward Bob Mills Nish Kumar you know on a Wednesday night boom 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 it's great it's great for me I love I love doing it now I don't think you could sustain those sorts we at Excess Malarkey for example you have an opening paid 20 you have a break you have an open spot you have a paid 15 you have a break you have a headliner now I only charge three quid so that's part of that part of that but i also think that means you get distinct and interesting voices and um, because of the nature of the gig as well 
because it's not a gig that has to attract passing tourists or big office nights out you're allowed a mix of styles you're allowed a bit of nuance and sometimes the oddball open spot that breezes in from nowhere is the best act of the night because it's a surprise and that surprise sort of reverberates around the building and some of the guys who are uh, a bit more experienced and a bit more dyed in the world seem a little bit stayed actually compared to that now on a difficult testy heady friday night such things are not quite the same and you need the steady pair of hands who who needs to keep the boat steady and 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 and, and the the vagaries of the open spot from left field are exposed you know to, to more scrutiny or a different kind of scrutiny but i think this so i've never compared never tried to aspire to be like any thing else I, I grew up as it were in the Manchester circuit with what I saw around me which was I got my experience on bills that when I was starting out had Chris Addison Dave Gorman Carolina Hearn she just sort of moved up really and was doing the telly but but um, Tony Burgess you know really struck Lucy Porter Johnny Vegas Peter Kay you know the Peter Kay started actually slightly after I did but uh, ascended fairly quickly and you were on bills with those people and you saw what they did sometimes it made you want to give up and sometimes you'd have a good gig and go and actually i can hold my own with this and i and i think that's an important development and i think there's less of a them and us and i always think the manchester circuit's been pretty good at, at being supportive and, and and there are also nights where established acts come and try out new material and consort with with there's no there's not so much them and us i would say and again, I'm not I'm not disparaging the London when I say the circuit when I say that. Your question though of going of saying, you know, did you aspire to be like London? No, and I actually think we have some virtues that, that London doesn't have. I would completely agree with the sentiment of there being an open circuit and a circuit for established acts. Mainly because that is spot on. Oh. Um, and it's frustrating for someone at, at my level in that, you know, I, I do all right on open spots on the established and nights and stuff but to break through to doing the paid stuff they're sort of already like well we've got a list as long as our arm with yeah. people we can just get on like you've named a load of them now and often management and stuff just have enough time to push people through and they do a lot of that for them and stuff and I mean I've done spots at the, the London Comedy Store and I've done one with you here like a month ago or something Yeah. and there's a totally different vibe with both those clubs just within the chain or at least I found it ah but this is a very different night new stuff is a night that I book that there's no guarantee of any progression it is a forum for established acts to try out new material but I will also sometimes take a punt on somebody who's maybe not played the store before or not played the store much and it gives them a chance to acclimatise themselves to the comedy store stage if I can surround them with acts that are established here or that I know so it's not it's this isn't a, a comedy store night if you if you do really well they'll refer you they'll refer you to the guys that book the weekends or, or maybe a you even get referred to London I don't really know I, I'm not part of that infrastructure what I do is I put on a night here and they they trust me to and it's it's gone from one night a month to two nights a month and it brings in the punters and it's a good night but that's all entirely at my discretion I book the acts I'm under no pressure to book certain people and not book certain people the pressure I put myself under is that it has to be a strong night with as I say the odd room for manoeuvre and sometimes I'll just take a chance or, or play by a hunch but it's no guarantee of any ascendancy up the comedy store ladder because um, I don't have that sort of influence. How, how did this night come about then? Because it sounds like you run the same, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you run a kind of thing like Excess, except for it's a cl uh, like a club club rather than in a venue that can be moved around. 
and it's your kind of booking policy rather than it being so it feels like it's kind of a, an outlaw to itself within the club structure of this venue well it was another accident they wanted to do a new material night at the comedy store this was this was many years ago and it was at the, it was the height of sort of uh, excess was doing particularly well so i was on a bit of it and i'd started to do a few bits and bobs for the comedy store the wednesday night topical comedy night that's now doesn't happen anymore and they said they want to do a new material night and i said well look well, I'll, I'll compare and book it for you and they went no no we don't we don't really need that we just it just it just needs people to sort of pop down you know headliners passing through people come and have a drink shoot the shit do 10 minutes and I was just like I know comedians that ain't gonna happen and we sort of talked through that because it, it was originally not supposed to have a compare it was supposed to be one act led on to the other and and that that didn't work out that wasn't that was that was never going to happen so I ended up comparing it and booking it you know getting six comedy store headline acts every Sunday to do their new material was a tall order so I cast the net out and um, I got very lucky quite early on because there were uh, coming up to Edinburgh. Tom Bins had Alan Carr, Jason Manford, a few people who went on to do very well at Edinburgh. One of the reasons they did very well at Edinburgh was because they came here every bloody month and hammered their material. So they went to to Edinburgh. You know, lesson to all the Edinburgh acts out there. You know, you don't just people don't just turn up with a show. No, we know that, but they. The, I, I mean, I they they really hammered it some of those guys so that's suddenly made it easier to get people on but it's never been it's never been what it was envisaged to be which is comedy store weekend acts all coming out and so i had to again use my discretion i'm not you know i'm there's no way i was gonna i don't have the same booking policy here as i have for excess malarkey i can't excess malarkey is a funny independent quirky gig this is the comedy store which is the standard bearer of you know the comedy circuit you know, I would jeopardise my job here if if I if I didn't take very seriously the the name and standing of the comedy store. So I have a very different mindset in terms of this night and 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 excess. But they've always always let me get on with booking it. And Don Don Ward comes along a couple of times a year, checks it out. He really likes the night uh, and has sometimes seen acts he didn't know, which is great. So whilst I can't offer progression, I'm not denying that it can happen there's room at the store for the sunday nights to be a bit you know there's the king gong is one night alex boardman's young guns is another night that's a night that encourages particularly young developing comics they get i think they get a few quid to do a slightly longer set than you do at a night like this or the the gong show so that's a development night you know the idea that the store is a sort of corporate beer moth that isn't interested in the grassroots is is wrong it's one i've heard it's one I think I probably believed many years ago because I was young and paranoid and because it's hard to get onto. Well, it should be. It's the comedy store. They pay you a fortune at the weekend and, and there's a lot of people who are capable of doing that. So it should be hard to play the comedy store at the weekend. It's the gig that everybody aspires to do. But they'd be fools if, if they didn't realise that people had to be nurtured and developed. Nobody lands a fully formed headliner. And I think it's the Sunday nights. And the gong show is harsh and it's difficult and it's cruel, but there we go, that's comedy. I'm glad it wasn't such a thing when I started out because I wouldn't have the backbone for that. I muddled along my own way. But I think I think nights like this and nights like Alex, Alex's night are all about nurturing the grassroots. And I, I actually think it's a great environment here, yeah. If someone wanted to progress at the comedy store, is it only the gong show that gets them like through to that open spot at a normal night i've got no idea oh you don't even okay. <laughs> I've, I've got my universe of my own terrors to face uh i yeah i guess so you know uh 
I mean, I think I think if you do it, it, it or there's Alex Alex Boardsman's night, but I don't know how you get on that. That's Alex's affair. Yeah, fair enough. A lot of comedians who do promotion work don't like being seen as promoters. Like they they want to be known as a comedian in their own right, rather than someone that like books a night and also does gigs. Do you find that you've ever been labelled with that brush, given that you started your own night and you booked this? And I, I've been told you're involved in other nights as well. You have been in the past. Well, I think if one worries about nomenclature, one's worrying about the, the the wrong things. I mean, I do sometimes. I was thinking about this today, actually, when I was painting the stairs. I was thinking, it's funny, I always... Uh, I, 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 I wonder what people think of me as a comedian, because I've, you know, I've done well as a comedian. I've taken shows to the West End. Um, uh, you know, I compare th- three of the best clubs in the country. Um, uh, but, but also my stand-up work has, has toured inter- internationally. But I still do think most people think, oh, he's that quite eccentric guy who compares that night. Um, and I remember I was at an awards ceremony this year where my play, I've written two plays for Radio 4, they've both been nominated for the top award. You know, the, 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 Chortle didn't even mention that. They mentioned the list of things, and then they just put the title of my play. They didn't actually put that I'd written it. And I was like, I can't don't even get mentioned. And I saw John Bishop. Um, who was there as you know famous guest sort of thing he went, oh, all right so we, and he, John's always been very nice to me and he likes because obviously I've made him laugh so all right so we, what are you doing here and I went yeah wouldn't even cross your mind that I might be here because I've been nominated for an award <laughs> you know and I think that's just me but then again that's one I think you know we're all paranoid and two I've done better than I ever exp- well uh, do, do I worry about I should I don't think anybody should worry about whether people see them as this, that or the other. You've got to largely make your own work in this business anyway. So there's no point bitching or worrying about that sort of thing. Do I think people only see me as a compo and as a promoter? Maybe. I should think what happens most of the time is people don't give me a second's thought, just like they don't give you a second's thought or anybody else a second's thought, because everybody in this business is worried about where their career's going. Or you know, I remember a friend of mine doing something well on TV and I thought why, why haven't they given me a thing of that I'm an actor why they know I'm an actor why they and it, it took me about a year and I thought because when I've been making my say my radio programmes and sort of thing I don't sort of have a list of my mates go, oh yes I must remember to think about Jim because Jim deserves a break because Jim's been slogging away for 10 years and frankly it's my chance to reset the balance in Jim's way just trying to make a radio series just the fact that loads of people I know have been trying to do their stuff and the fact that I'm not in the forefront of their mind is not because they're awful or because I'm underrated or anything like that is because we are all just trying to do the things that we do it's a business that is you know somebody might just forgotten you one day or it's like when you send an email and you never hear back and you think that person must hate me i've got tons of emails i've forgotten to reply to it's not because i hate that person it's because just as i was about to reply to it my girlfriend called about the cake in the fridge that i should have thrown away that's now moldy and now i've got to throw away the fridge the thing that's moldy in the fridge but i'm annoyed with her because she never did that thing that i wanted her to do and i'm going to bring that up now because i'm in trouble about the cake that was moldy in the fridge so instead of just going yeah it's my fault the cake was moldy, i go it's probably your fault because i would have got rid of the moldy cake if you'd done that thing i'd asked you to do and all before you've known it i've forgotten about that email that doesn't mean i hate gary do you know what i mean well i mean we all hate gary to be yeah, fair. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck gary no i uh, yeah i completely agree with that i think i think 
being self-involved is the only this is probably the only industries being self-involved is kind of a virtue like it's kind of useful in the sense that you kind of make your own work because you're in your own space uh, but i also think it could stop you I oh mean, yeah i mean i mentioned earlier that i you know maybe used to be grumpy about the comedy store and that was that was that was all part of that all because i ran an independent comedy club it's really difficult to get column inches we were busy but i wanted things there going this is an amazing club it's won the chortle award and i wanted the local press to do that uh, i won an award here and it wasn't even mentioned in city life and i'd go why why aren't they mentioning me they should be championing me blah 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 and i had this sort of and i was a fist oh, I was so angry and all that sort of thing and i learned that things were much better when i wasn't angry and when again i realized that sometimes people just neglected to put a thing because they forgot or maybe because they were crap at their job or maybe because they didn't care and that actually uh, having in terms of this place the comedy store having a comedy store in manchester was brilliant for comedy because it actually helped sort of spread the word that we already knew that there was a brilliant circuit here and brilliant comics on your doorstep and, and actually when I pulled my head out of my arse and realised it wasn't all a battle I've got friends now who are younger than me who are a couple who've had really good breaks who one of whom went to a casting recently and they were actually the wrong demographic and they shouldn't have done the thing and they texted me and said oh, I'm going to I'm gonna tear them off a strip because this is a complete waste of my time and I'm pissed off I went don't do that you're about to see one of the top casting directors in the country it's not a battle it's not all they'll if you if you're pissed off when you go in they'll just go well, we won't see you there again whereas if you go in and you're nice you might not get this job but they might go ah oh, but two weeks later when it's this job well they won't if they think you're a dick and i think uh, maybe it's because i'm 42 and i've got two kids and i'm a bit tired that i'm much less furious than i used to be but i don't think i did myself any favors being furious because i wasted a lot of energy worrying about injustice who said the world is fair great quote from uh, an actor i knew called ray london who's no longer with us i wrote his obituary for the guardian and then i read his obituary in the independent which was better than the one i wrote in the guardian and it had a had a quote from him where it said uh, and he said i've never complained about the business and he had a great career I've never complained about the business because when I started, nobody told me it would be fair. And I thought that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Who said it was going to be fair? Don't waste your energy wanting it to be fair. There's not somebody there who, if you shout loud enough, is going to go, oh, yes, I'm sorry, the balance isn't tipped in the favour of the virtuous. Uh, I better just sort that out. It's, it's you know, that's that's the business. Either do something about it or be furious about it. And, and you could do something about it and it might not work. But it's certainly not going to work if you just sit there bitching about it. No, I... I I had quite a, I wouldn't say a row, but I had quite a bad argument with someone recently because they put a thing on Facebook saying they'd got an agent and like people had messaged them saying, oh, how did you get your agent? And they said, I worked really hard and it, that led to this. And I was like, yeah, but you're, you're saying that like working hard guarantees you're going to get an agent. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't. It just means you worked hard. So statistically, you are more likely to get noticed by an agent. You can't write it like I worked hard. So of course I got an agent because not every, first of all, not everyone wants an agent. And second of all, how can you you can't tell people that because it's going to make everyone think I'll just work hard and it'll all be sorted when an agent comes along and a lot of the time people's first agent isn't the best thing for them anyway. no no and you know you think you get and I and I used to think oh it's just because my agents are useless this is particularly acting agents and actually you then meet other actors who are with that agency that you really want to get in with and they go god no they're useless I go but you were in that and they go well yeah I was only in that because the director of that worked with me on that and I did that you know a good agent does make a difference in if if we're talking the, the the very top flight. But even a lot of those top flight agents, they can't get you the job. Mm. You have to get the job. You have to be what they want, essentially. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of things, especially on the open circuit in London. And I suppose it's less so, but it's still there a little bit in the 
way that you mentioned there where if people are nice they're more likely to want to work with you where people will start nice to trade spots or they'll or they'll become promoters and they'll work out a way that means that it works out beneficial for them and i assume that's obviously impossible for you to do here because it's not like it's such a uh, stringent but lax policy that means that you couldn't sort of you know what i mean it would it would look weird if you started booking people based on trading spots for yourself but have you ever lost out on gigs as a result of just not being able to book someone as regularly as you, because they're a mate here kind of thing, or anything like that? I don't, I don't think so, because I, d I don't sort of think about losing out on gigs, because my career's largely spent having to cancel stuff because something else has come up. Have I lost gigs? Well, there's maybe a couple of clubs I don't work for because maybe the promoters of that didn't, prosperous excess in the early years often largely because I forgot to phone people back if I'm honest but none that I'm kicking myself about and none that I couldn't have done something about if I'd really tried and been that bothered okay let, let's do this then say someone emails in to get a spot at you obviously don't book there anymore but excess or, yeah. or the comedy store yeah what is it like at your end working on lineups and things like that so, so someone can get in the mind of the other end of the email instead of them just hitting send and going, oh, I bet they don't get back to me, or oh, they didn't get back to me. It's not, it's not that problem. Um, How do I, you? I can, uh, I can tell a, I can tell a cut and pasted email, and they don't terribly excite me. If I'm honest, I feel slightly less guilty about not replying to those. And I, but quite often I just forget. What I try and do is, if I open one, and it's one I've got to respond to later, I'll then mark it as unread, and it'll go on my thing to do I've just I've just done a backlog of about 50 emails that I knew were all about this night next year say and I've got back to people you know somebody in October said can I do January the 29th and they've and they emailed that on October the 12th and they found out yesterday that yes they can to pique my interest because I, I can't really take many risks here as I say I sometimes do if somebody sends me a funny clip or or if somebody if somebody comes across to be perfectly honest as professional if I get one that's riddled with swear, the ones I get, uh, Toby, somebody says you run a, a comedy night or something at the store. Can I? I've, you, I've literally had one that said that you you run a new material night or summer at the at the store. How do I get on that? Not that way, sweetheart. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm an old fashioned. I'm a student of uh, of old actors, and I'm I. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of old 60s, 70s television when people used to write proper letters to people saying, uh, we, we would like to offer you the part of Bregan in six episodes of Doctor Who. Oh, I would be delighted to take the part. And then after, I was so, it was, it was such an enjoyable engagement. I look forward to working with you again. And what, when people used to write letters and you'd find out whether you'd got a job or not. I remember one director, one actress telling me that a director took her out to dinner to explain to her why he hadn't given her a particular television part that she'd auditioned for. You know, you just don't find out. So, uh, so a, a bit of a sort of well-worded professional look. If if you come across to me as professional on the email, I suspect you're more likely to come across as professional on the stage, which is going to help you get onto the comedy store stage in particular. With excess, I would say don't email me. I'd say email Ros Bell or Corrie Shaw because they're much better organised than I am. Though Corrie's off at the moment, so don't bother her. And I think Rosie's busy. Leave them alone till after Christmas. If you're listening to this in January, go for it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I would say that particularly about excess because if because because uh, I've I've got three books I'm supposed to finish writing this year. With new stuff, it's more likely if I've seen you. If somebody comes to excess and does a really good job, it's a guy called Ben Pope who I saw recently. Absolutely brilliant. I said, well, you've got to come to the store. 
and I had faith that he would come here and he would do well and he really did he blasted it and uh, that's really exciting because I go that's the progression somebody's come to it many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Access that I didn't know from Adam has just done this spot. Just been booked in for this spot by Rosa Corey to do the 10 or the 15 or whatever. I think he did the 10, open spot, but it was great. And he came and did it, and he was sandwiched in between more experienced acts. He absolutely blew the night away. It's absolutely fantastic. And you go, okay, well, I'll make sure. Ben, you email me. Let's get you back in. You do it like that. So, um, yeah, be good in my vicinity. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Don't, don't be good where I can't see you. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair enough. But, you know, dude, I mean, if you've got a clip or something, but, it, you know, it's... With this night, I, I have to be careful how I take a punt. Better to be good in my vicinity. Especially if you send me the clip I'm on on a train and I've got l- limited gigabytes, whatever they're called, left on my plan this month. Uh, I'll go, I'll do that later, and then I'll forget. So if you didn't want to book someone, would you tell them, sorry, we don't take that kind of act, or I can't book that kind of act? Or is it a case of just keep emailing in? If I don't want to book someone. If you couldn't or you didn't want to book someone for this particular gig or any gig that you are involved uh, in. No, I've said, I've, I've got a bit better at it recently. I've sort of said, look, I'm not really in a position because this is how the gig is envisaged. This is the sort of person that we usually have on. You know, and somebody says, oh, I've been gigging for 14 months now or whatever. And I sort of go, oh, you probably need to have a bit more under your belt. And that's not to patronise people, but that's just that's just because that's, you know, I, I feel then people are maybe trying to uh, um, leapfrog over the gong. We're, you know, we're, we're not an alternative for the gong for people who don't want to do it. Right. Just because I might be slightly soft on occasion. That's, that's not the deal. I don't, I'm not sure what the deal is, but it's in my bones. Fair enough. You've talked a little bit, but not really said it as such in the the circuit is kind of, well there's, there's sort of been an ongoing discussion about whether the circuit is in crisis or not and for you to say as a, as a booker in this capacity anyway that less people are coming to live shows or there's less demand for that mm. would you say that's still a problem especially in Manchester 
I hope that things go round and round in circles. When I was starting out, there were plenty of smug white middle-class men doing comedy. There weren't any earthy northerners with a cheeky smile until a chap called Peter Kay came along and nobody thought there was a gap in the market for him. I mean, he was brilliant at what he did as well, but he came out and, and provided something people didn't know that they were missing. And that came out of nowhere. At the moment, nobody seems to be missing live comedy. That doesn't mean they never will. That doesn't mean that in, you know, nothing dates like new technology. People, do, n n n n nothing bores quicker people than, t you know, today's latest fad. And and so who know, you know, people still go and see live music. People, people still go to the theatre. And I think stand-up's a great night out. There's nothing like the febrile atmosphere of a, of a, of a live comedy night. I'm saddened that there aren't the small, funny little gigs that were all over the place when I started. Although I've seen a few more of those spring up lately. I think something needed to be done about some of the terrible gigs anyway. Because I think they send, out, they send out the signals to people that this is what comedy is like. And it, and it isn't. And I think most of the weekend gigs that survive now are excellent. You know, especially the, the, the independents or the ones that... Uh, uh, you know, or the big standard bearers like this. I mean, you look at the Comedy Store London's lineup every, or Manchester every Friday and Saturday night. You go, God, the circuit. You know, the circuit is in really good health, but there are more comics and there are fewer spots. And it also saddens me a little bit that uh, that means that the circuit doesn't quite have as many of the eccentric slightly out there performers that it once had I mean you do the you do one of the raw nights at, at the, the frog and bucket back in the day and it was it was a menagerie of weirdos and I don't mean that pejoratively even though it sounds I mean it was you know it was a really it could an audience and the audience were kind of fine with that I, I think comedy became very professional in the course of my 21 years this week since I did my first ever gig congratulations uh, which yeah which means I'm a survivor that's that's do you know what? I, I, I actually do. I, I carry that. It surprises me with a certain amount of pride. For somebody that said at the beginning of this interview, I didn't really have any ambition to be a stand-up. That's not quite true. I didn't think I was ever, I was, would be able enough. And I certainly didn't think, you know, I'd watch the Comedy Store players. and uh, spoken with it hallowed tones. Well, when the Comedy Store came to Manchester, I thought, well, that's nice. But I, thought, I didn't think I'd ever play there. Uh, and my picture went up on the wall this week. So I think that shows that anything is possible. And it took me a while, it took me a long while to find my voice. Ten years at least, to find that was a gigging every Tuesday as well. To find that I didn't have to pretend to be this angry person. Because I was that on stage as well, as off. And when you settle into your own voice, and then you can just sort of know that you can just go on and talk about whatever you want. That's the breakthrough. And it t sometimes it takes, took me a long time. So there's a lot of comics, there's a lot of comics, there are fewer spaces. I'm not the best person to ask because I'm fortunate in that I have other things that I do so that where somebody who only earns his money or her, his or her money from comedy has to maybe go to Southampton on a Thursday night for 120 quid, I'm fortunate that I am in a position to go, I don't need to do that. But I've certainly found those, those, those years where I was easily gigging every weekend if I wanted to. If I wasn't, I'd pick something up. And all those sorts of th those 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 days have gone, and I see lots of very good. And also, I know now it used to be that if you pulled a Friday night on the Monday, people would pull their hair out. What? How are we ever going to fill that? 
<laughs> now you could pull the Friday night on. You could text round good acts. Go, you doing anything Friday? I'm going to have to pull a gig. I've got a bit of TV warm up or something, and you'll have a taker. So it's so I know it's not just just me. And as I say, because I'm a little bit choosy, but I think nature abhors a vacuum, and I think there's enough talent on the circuit, not just in terms of talent on stage but talent as in terms of acumen and creativity and all that sort of thing that that people can create audiences i did a series of plays in manchester around the corner from here about a month and a half ago new short 15 minute plays written by established tv writers with local actors and it was on every day for two weeks in a venue that seats about 169 people and it sold out every night because it's got some really bright smart dedicated people that's been going 16 seasons now so about eight years it's called jb shorts it uh, shows that you know i think the circuit got a bit complacent as well i think it was a license to print money for a bit for certainly some of the bigger clubs and and now you have to be a bit more creative about how you get how you get people in but i think i still think it can be done okay i've got one more question about promoting stuff before we go into other things you do yeah there's a lot of talk of diversity on the circuit like you've mentioned and obviously there's things about quotas both on tv and in, and in radio to a certain degree and sort of making sure there is enough uh, as you mentioned you know not just a white middle class male lineup on bills and stuff yeah how much does that come into your makeup and mind when you're putting together bills not one iota in fact funny enough we had a bill at excess about eight weeks ago that was all female it wasn't a ladies night or anything like that it was just Ros had booked somebody Corey booked somebody I'd booked somebody oh it's all women so then of course I kept going this is brilliant because it's all female gig we haven't mentioned that in any of the publicity it was just a thing that happened you know we haven't made a big deal of it Ross said at the end of that you really did make a big deal of that you mentioned it every single time oh damn but it was good because we didn't make a deal of it until you did make a big deal of it but uh, and that happened again recently I think we had three women and four men but that was that was because I don't balance a bill particularly you, you know you stick on who's available and who you, you know if you've booked in somebody you don't want to then because you've got another woman ring that first book go, oh can you do the following week because I don't want two women oh that's ridiculous so if it falls like that it falls like that I have been a victim of quotas and I bet you now expect me to go oh it's political correctness gone mad I'm not going to twice I've had television parts that I have either been promised or that I've actually in one case been given are taken away and I've been replaced by an actor of colour different excuses both times outcome the same and in fact one of them was a part that had been written for me in something wasn't much of a part but it was a it was an, the name was an in joke it was a, it would have been a funny little thing it would have been a part on telly for me it would have been nice and the message came back when I sent a thing saying aren't we supposed to be filming that soon and the message came back saying yeah I'm sorry about that but uh, they saw you know the big bosses saw you know the cast lists and uh, and, and said that it wasn't diverse enough and your part is now being played by a black woman and I sent a text back saying that's the story of my life mate in which I will be played by Whoopi Goldberg uh, uh, there have been countless black Asian gay whatever people who have lost out on work in this business because of an unfair bias the other way if I lose out on two small parts on television to slightly redress that balance i think it's a bit pathetic of me to bitch about it and i refer you to what ray lunnan said nobody ever told me it was going to be fair and what's fair anyway because I, I always think but what about those two people who got that job they'll have been absolutely delighted and it might have been a part that they wouldn't normally have got considered for because uh, unless this sort of thing has started to happen now so i think you have to have a slightly more i, I certainly don't believe in giving a job to somebody who is not good enough at that job 
based on their ethnicity or, or, or whatever. But there's loads of good comics out there and there's loads of good actors out there. And none of us have a God-given right to be any of the, given any of the things that we get. And again, if it just slightly redresses the balance and normalises something that in everyday society is, is normal but isn't reflected on, on our television sets or in our dramas or, is the, or in our comedy or is so only in a certain way you know something does need to be done don't it but, it, but in terms of the way i book live comedy and that sort of thing it doesn't enter my head at all i mean i, I you know i no, i i could you know i could accidentally have an all black bill but i will question that in no way but nor would actually and this is the more telling nor would i question it if uh, everyone was white male and middle class and i suspect i've booked a hell of a lot more of those nights in my time just on the numbers of the people that yeah. are there so yeah so you have said a few times that you you wanted to you always wanted to be an actor. That's kind of your yeah. your thing. So if I said to you, how would you describe yourself as a career? Like if you had to pick one job title, would you say actor? Uh, no, because I am my living as a stand-up comedian. Okay. So if you had to get one label, it wouldn't be promoter or actor. It would be comedian. If I was honest, yeah. By the sounds of it, that would reflect then in your because some people are comedians but are you know want to be writers for example and obviously make more money on the live circuit than they do from their writing work or vice versa hmm. does does your earnings reflect what you think you are then well probably although that's slightly changed now because i've just got because <laughs> i haven't mentioned writing and i've just got i've had i i've had a number of very healthy writing commissions none of which i've see this makes me feel terribly guilty none of which i've chased uh, my uncle's wanted to write all his life. He's a film editor and a very successful and able one. But he's always wanted to write. He's always wanted to write a play for Radio 4. I've never particularly aimed to write a play for Radio 4, but love the idea. And I wrote one last year, and I've just been commissioned to write one for next year. And that that's fallen into my lap comparatively easy. So that just goes to show. I mean, it's a, it's a moot question, because I say I'm an actor, writer, and comedian. Uh, and I say it in that order because I think it sounds better. And actually, I do... V- well, as an actor, I do a lot of voiceovers. Um, so, I, in fact, I wonder if he broke down my earnings. If I actually earn more as a voiceover artist, I do a lot of plays for Radio Four. I, I present on Radio Four Extra. My voice has stood me in good stead. I don't know why my mum always said I should. Anyway, my voice, my voice has helped me. But I, but let, I'm, and it's weird. I think I, I think I, relatively recently, I managed to go. Actually, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a comedian, because. I've always done myself down anyway, so I think that oh well you you know you you'll never be good enough to be a comedian you know you're just the the promoter the compo or whatever or or you know you you you'll, you'll never be good enough to play the comedy store. Well, I've always felt I've never been good enough for anything, and that's what's sort of driven me on to do stuff. So the fact so so I'm proud to call myself a comedian because I see it for me as somebody who doesn't walk into a room and dazzle it and who doesn't sit around a table and be very very funny and who looks at some comedians and think they make it look easy. The fact that I've managed to earn a living doing it, the fact that I'm still doing it 21 years later, and the fact that I play the comedy store, I've been to the West End and do all those things, even if some people do only see me as a promoter, I know that I've done, when I when I look at it and go, oh, actually, I'm quite proud of that because I'm not I'm not a Seymour Mace. I always use Seymour as an example. Seymour's an obviously funny guy. Seymour is funny. Seymour is funny bones. He's a comedic weird... He's funny. He's just funny, like Eric Morecambe. It's just, you look at him, he's funny. You don't look at me and I'm funny. But I've managed to do it, and I've managed to do it to, to a very high level. I've closed the comedy store, and nobody afterwards went, well, you shouldn't have done that. So I'm proud to call myself a comedian. That's only on a very personal 
level based on maybe limitations I'd thought about myself. But there's a lot I look back on myself 15, 20 years ago and go, well, you were wrong about that. And that's okay. I'm okay with that as well. So when you were starting out, when you were going to start out as a comedian, Mm. was that reflective of the fact that there weren't many people, quote unquote, like you high up, which meant that you maybe thought it wasn't an aspirational thing? No, there were loads of people like me high up. I just didn't think I'd be as good as them. There were loads of smug white middle class men doing political jokes, which is how I started out. Now I just do jokes about falling apart, crumbling and being cross about trivia. So when I started talking about Doctor Who, I took a big turn, actually. No! friend of mine put a comedy night on said did i want to go i had to go friends loads of friends of mine came along to support me they laughed as did some of the other people it felt good i thought i'll do that again and 21 years ago later here we are in the cellar of the comedy store that's pretty much what's happened to me i did it Uh, once found i I enjoyed it more than anything and now i just carry on trying to get that back so uh, (laughs) yeah no that that it's just it's just interesting how your career's sort of taken different turns in that way. And and you mentioned Doctor Who. Mm. I I was going to tell you very quickly this story, and I said I'd do it on this just because it's easier. But do you know Pete Dillon Trenchard? Yeah, a little bit. Right. I texted him last year because he uh, I saw there was a Doctor Who special at Christmas. Yeah. Just to tell him that I seen there was Doctor Who Christmas at spe- uh, special at Christmas, and he replied because I thought he might not want to miss it, and he replied they do it every year, <laughs> like. That's not a new thing. And because I didn't know anything about Doctor Who and I've never watched an episode of it, I thought, oh, I'm helping a mate out. Uh-huh. That's the level you're, you're looking at here, by yeah. the way. So if I say anything ignorant and, I, and you don't understand the Doctor Who references... Sure thing. That's why. And in fact, you recently helped me out because I was mistaken for another character in Doctor Who. Yes. Which I still love. Yeah. Because um, he's dead. Yeah. So <laughs> well, we think he is. We think he is. Okay. Well, I, I did some Googling after you told me that and I couldn't. Uh, you, you run a Doctor Who podcast. Well, that was another thing that happened by accident and is non-profit making. This, this is how my life... What do you make profit <laughs> I write obituaries for The Guardian and do voiceovers and, uh, and I play the comedy store and I spend all my gates on non-profit making. <laughs> Vanity project. Doctor was about to celebrate its 50th anniversary in 2013. My marriage was breaking up and I'd been very ill in hospital and so was consequently rather down in the dumps at my mum's house feeling like I had nowhere to go, nothing to do. It was about to be Doctor Who's 50th anniversary, which is supposed to be the most exciting time of my life, and I wanted to kill myself. Somebody on Twitter put, my wish for Doctor Who's 50th anniversary is that Toby Haydock interviews everyone from Doctor Who, because I'd done a few Doctor Who DVD extras where I'd tracked down some... Uh, I'd found out what had happened to some people nobody knew anything about, blah 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 I'd been a bit of an archaeologist of people. And I said, well, I can't interview everyone from Doctor Who. And I don't know why, why I thought this when I put it, but I just thought, but I thought what I could do is I could try and get, just as a task, just give me something to do, I could get a first-hand anecdote from every single Doctor Who story. Spend the 50th year doing that as a podcast. I always really thought, well, I know so-and-so who is in the whole of the Patrick Trout era, so that'll knock all them off. And blah, blah, blah. I thought it'd be fairly easy. And I approached this company and, 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 and I said, how about it, Big Finish, with this company that do Doctor Who audios, but they have web space and they do a podcast, because I knew I couldn't do any of the, I knew I wouldn't be able to do any of the technical stuff. So that was my major thought was, how do I avoid doing the technical stuff and do this thing? So I went to them and they said, yeah, fine, do it. So then I just sort of put the word out there going, oh, I want to interview people from Doctor Who. And I got in touch with a few people that I knew who'd been in Doctor Who. And then a few people sort of said, oh, I know so-and-so who was in one episode. And I thought, oh, well, that person's never been interviewed before. And somebody went, oh, I know Kevin McNally, who's the guy from Pirates of the Caribbean, but was in four bad episodes of Doctor Who, but one of our finest actors. And I got in touch with Kevin and Kevin was great. And I met up with him and he was so funny and he was so, but also 
also so enthused about talking about Doctor Who, even though he's a bad one, and he's Kevin McNally, who's done everything. And he was so nice, and he treated me like a normal person, not like some fan. And I think it's because you forget, you go, well, I'm a fan, but I'm an actor, and I've been to the... You know, somebody had said, oh, it's this guy, Toby, he's been... And my CV obviously looks okay, you know. And I came away from that thinking, this is the best stuff. And I didn't just talk to him about Doctor Who. Because I couldn't. That would be wrong to go to Kevin McNally. He's been an eye Claudius, for goodness sake. He deep fat fried Lisa Faulkner in Spooks. And I'm just there going, tell me about the twin dilemma. You know, he's worked with Johnny Depp. So I asked him about everything. And it was brilliant. And I thought, this is what I do. I use Doctor Who as a conduit to talk to people, actors, boom operators, directors, designers, about their careers as a whole. Well, actually, I put the word out there and I said, do you want it to be just about Doctor Who or a short podcast about Doctor Who or a longer one about everything. And I got a 50-50 response. Some people go, no, it should just be about Doctor Who. Some people go, oh, no, it would be better if you talked about everything. Notice I gave the first lot a stupid voice to undermine them because it's my anecdote. And I thought, well, actually, this is my podcast. I'm doing it. I'm not making any money. The only money that is made is that the interviewee afterwards nominates charity and the people who download it, if they choose to, donate to that charity. And I hope people do. I know they do because I've had word back from the charities on occasion. And I thought, well, as I, this is my thing and I'm doing it, it's costing me, I have to buy the actors lunch or whatever, I'll do what I want to do, which is do this the, this thing where I talk to them about that. And I did it. I spent the whole of 2013. I got a first-hand anecdote from every single Doctor Who story. I interviewed everyone from Zoe Wanamaker to Kevin McNally via Bob Mills, who was an extra in one story in 1982, to eventually Russell T. Davis came to my flat and gave me a, a day. So from really famous people, but not, not sort of regulars from Doctor Who, because I sort of, they've been interviewed millions of times before. I'd done loads of DVD commentaries from 1960s stories, and if, I'd, if we'd had all of the cast bar one on that, I tried to get the one that we hadn't got for the podcast, just as a personal challenge. And so I got a few like that. And I got also, and all the best stories were nothing to do with Doctor Who. I got one about a guy who stayed on Errol Flynn's yacht in... Uh, Saint-Tropez and saw him play chopsticks with his cock on a piano. Uh, this same guy had just lost 10 million quid because he's had to sell the nudist island that he'd bought because it was contaminated with nuclear waste. Do you know, this is more interesting than saying, oh, I did rep and then I was in Doctor Who for four episodes in 1966, you know. And I found uh, inspiring stories from people who'd you know, had cancer and survived it. Another about a guy who was an actor, but he was born in France and five days, at five days old, his parents took him to England, forgot to sign a bit of paperwork. He went back to France as a 19 year old and signed into a hotel and had to fill in the paperwork. And uh, at midnight, the, uh, his doors were kicked in. He was arrested and court-martialed for desertion because his father had not signed a particular piece of paper, conscripted into the French army without speaking a word of French and ended up serving in Algiers. And then whilst he's there, he's liaison to the British navy when they pull into port because he can speak english and they go why is your english so good he tells them the story they invite him back onto the boat uh, to look round and his french officer says you can go on the boat but i want your word as an english gentleman that you'll not desert us he goes onto the boat they show him around the captain summons him says you're in english soil now mate we set sail at midnight come home he said i'm sorry sir i gave my word as an english gentleman that i would not desert and he went back to his unit these sorts of things and this was guy from one episode in 1969 all this sort of stuff is brilliant and it's all because of my stupid obsession with to, but it's always really been about the people and so it's about people and I've interviewed 250 different people I've carried on doing it since 2013 it's another of those things I look back on now and go I wouldn't start that now same, I, same as I wouldn't start a comedy club now I wouldn't start that now I don't know why I started it then I was drunk and sad I think maybe that's the thing to do be drunk and sad and you'll be you're doing wonders there's a lot of people who are drunk and sad yeah. listening to this so 
you're, you're about to basically launch a lot of podcasts <laughs> that obsess about TV shows with that kind of <laughs> comment. So but you, you said this was like the turning point in your career. Like you said this was a big... No, that the podcast wasn't. No, the podcast has just been a thing that I've done that I'm proud of. The turning point in my career was when I went to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2006 with a show called Moth's Ape, My Doctor Who Scarf, where for the first time really, apart from when Doctor Who came back in 2005... As a compare at a comedy club every Tuesday, you talk about what you know and what's happened to you. What I knew and what happened to me was that I was very excited about Doctor Who. And a beautiful moment happened where I, and I would go and just do something about the episode. And when Doctor Who came back, it was very successful, having been a, a, a show that everyone thought was rubbish. So I was sort of right in a way. And I remember the, the best moment was when I mentioned an episode of Doctor Who. And uh, I, I said, Did anyone see Doctor Who on Saturday? Excess malarkey. 200 people absolutely crammed. And a voice from the back went, Shoit! And the rest of the audience parted and guffawed, knowing that I would absolutely tear this bloke. Down. And I love the fact that that was totally unsaid, but I'd done enough, and they knew and liked me enough, and what I did enough, to go, Oh, don't diss Doctor Who in front of Toby. And I thought, Oh, that's. That's I can do. I can obviously talk about this in a fashion that's entertaining enough. And then a friend, it was a friend of mine's idea. He he said, "Go to it." I'd, I'd got a title, "Moths Ate My Doctor Who Scarf," because moths did eat my Doctor Who scarf, and I, it was a title that had been rattling around. And my mate said, "Do it as an Edinburgh show." And I'd never really thought about doing Edinburgh again. I never thought I was one of those comics that would be good enough. And I went to Edinburgh in two thousand and six. I talked about what I knew, and I talked about what I loved, and also talked about what I knew and loved at a time that it was resurging in popularity and I think I beat everybody, all the other comics to it who quite like Doctor Who by a year because I don't quite like Doctor Who, I fucking love it and so I was lucky but I did a good show as well and it wasn't a show about Doctor Who it was a show about my dad leaving me with Doctor Who as a current running through it this was before the dad shows by the way and so people came along expecting to see just a thing about a bloke going oh aren't I a geek and it was much more human than that I, w I would say but it was also funny that got a radio series that went to the west end that toured for well i did the last performance of it in 2013 so i i, I actually performed it quite regularly for the first three or four but it still had legs you know seven years after that and i did a sequel and that also performed at the garrick theater in the west end so talking about doctor who do, doing what i know but so that same friend who suggested i do it said you're you're always funnier when you're you and so you know, those first years of trying to be Bill Hicks, trying to be Jack D, and trying to do do all those people that I liked, rather than going, well, what do I find, what what, what do I think's funny, what's the things that make me laugh that I do in everyday life? It, finding my own voice was what was the turning point of my career. It helps comparing the same place every Tuesday night. For for for, then I had t 2006, so excess would be going eight or nine years. So I didn't go to Edinburgh till I'd got quite good. I was in no hurry to go to Edinburgh. I'd done a I'd done a group show many years before that, but just to just to do Edinburgh, not not. But I I went to Edinburgh with my first hour, when I was a comedian who could do an hour on stage. I always wonder whether it comes down to the comedian not liking themselves enough to not imitate another person. Because if you you're comfortable in yourself to be that on stage and off stage, it makes it easier to to write for you. Well, I'm not very comfortable with myself, but I know how to enunciate that in a way that's entertaining now. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, no. And perhaps that's it's that uncomfortability, that uh, uncomfortableness, that uh, that is at the heart of what makes me funny. <laughs> I was going to ask, 
why it was a turning point. But I think you've answered all those questions <laughs> in a very short space of time. I'm going to do the final uh, quick fire questions. Um, they're quick fire for me, but you take as long as you like. Although, as you said, there are people probably going to come in any second now. By the way, can, can we give a shout out to the people who've been sitting through this? <laughs> You're doing it voluntarily, listeners. These are people who've just turned up for a gig, poor sods. Yes. Sorry, sorry, okay. F- thank you very much for Burns, Tony Concerta, playing at a place near you soon. Go see them. <laughs> I'll link to them in the show notes in the description. Thank you very much for putting up with this. <laughs> okay, so if we start with, uh, what are the best books on comedy writing or stand-up you've ever read? God, you, you say it like I give a fuck about it, like anybody else thinks. The best books on comedy writing or stand-up that I've ever read? I haven't read any. Okay. Went to the University of Life, me, mate. Fair enough. I went to the comedy book of life. (laughs) (laughs) What's the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it? Oh, I haven't overcome the fact that whenever there's anybody really important in the room, I somehow either find myself being a bit of a prick or or very unimpressive. Okay. What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about what you do? That everything I seem to have done that's been a success is some sort of accident and that I'm just this nice bloke who who muddles along. Didn't, haven't you said during that that you you didn't have a plan and that you didn't necessarily want to do so wouldn't it have been yeah but okay all right so from an but, outsider point of view wouldn't that be uh so what's the question uh what what do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have of what you do uh that uh oh the mis- biggest misconceptions that they have about what to do um, I don't really know because I don't really know what other people think about me. Um, Should we ask? Should we <laughs> uh, what's the biggest misconceptions that people have? What's the two? Well, I think the misconception that people have is that I'm posh and I'm from some sort of privileged background because I'm not. I just uh, over enunciate my RP because at heart I'm a hammy old actor. Fair enough. Who do you think is the most underrated person in the industry? Well, we'll start by saying anybody over the age of 35, because they don't put them on telly anymore. Um, one of, a prime example of whom would be somebody I was working with the other day who did a whole new set, all of which was blisteringly good. And I was slightly disappointed because the last time I'd seen him, he'd done a load of stuff that I was looking forward to seeing again. You know, sometimes an act does a routine. You go, oh, they're going to do that routine tonight. And they didn't do that routine. And they did another 20 minutes. It was absolutely brilliant. So this week, it's Jeff Innocent. But it is Jeff Innocent and people of his ilk, people who've been around a long time, who've just got so much good, so good, they wear it so lightly, they make it look easy, and yet they're not put on television because they're a bit older. Bonkers. Brilliant comic. If you, if you make a TV show that wants to make people laugh and you don't put Jeff Innocent on it, you're a dick. My next question was going to be, what do you think is the biggest problem in the comedy industry and how would you go about solving it? But I'm imagining it's people over 35. No, it's not. No, no. The biggest problem in the comedy industry, and this is something I'm very firm on, I don't agree with a lot of what Andrew Lawrence says, and I, I'm not sure I believe his motives for saying them, but the, the, the fact that... The problem with the comedy industry, and it actually doesn't affect the punters particularly, it doesn't affect the people that watch the television, so we must remember that. They don't care. But I believe I believe in the BBC and a public service broadcaster, I don't think should only cast its net as wide as two or three agencies 
for the talent that they haul in. They should have people going out and looking at people. I mean, I've had people, I know people who've made television programs and they've said, right, who do you want for, for, for your, you know, your supporting cast? And these people said, this person, that person. They've gone, yeah, no, 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 no. Um, actually, we're going to go for, the, we want this person, that person. And they've said, but can they act? They go, we don't know, but um, they're on the list of people that we want to use. If you've got a list of people, I mean, Doctor Who's 50th anniversary, they had loads of Talking Heads programs with comedians on. I wasn't on any of them. So let's just bring this back to me for a second because that will happen with all sorts of programs over everywhere. If you don't get me, who's been to the West End twice, has done a Sony-nominated radio show about Doctor Who, and you're getting funny people to talk about Doctor Who. I write articles in Doctor Who magazine and The Guardian about Doctor Who. I think doesn't mean you can't have everybody else, but if you don't ask me because I'm not on your list, I even present a science fiction hour on the BBC, but because I'm not on the comedy people's list for whatever reason, that means when they're making a programme, they're not getting the most appropriate people. So let's now take this away from Doctor Who and about anything else. If you're making a programme about hairdressing and you've got a comedian who used to be a hairdresser and you don't put them on for their insight because you've got another comedian who's represented by the same agents that represent the big talent that you have on all of your other shows. You as a public service broadcaster are abdicating your responsibility to the license payers and actually to the creativity in the country and you're doing exactly what the virtuous things that we've talked about the circuit doesn't do which is get disparate voices and I'm not talking about diversity now because an agency can make up diversity very easily by plucking somebody from this ethnic group or this gender group or this haircut group or whatever that's not that's not what diversity is about diversity is because if they're all saying the same thing it's not diversity it's diversity of ideas diversity of styles and the comedy circuit is a rich rich mosaic of all sorts of very different people and it's a very egalitarian one actually because if you make an audience laugh you do well but that is then filtered through uh, the prism of 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 a corporate nature in order to be put on the television in the commercial sphere that is perfectly acceptable it's all about making money the bbc should not be doing that and it should be reflecting that by by actually having people who it employs it employs a lot of people who go out and select people. The, the, the circuit on television bears almost no resemblance anymore to the circuit, to the live circuit. Because you see people on television. I remember there was an, I remember an act being on, have I got news for you because who they were was pertinent to a particular news story at the time. And I'd been booking excess for ages at this point. And this act was on. And my other half went, at the time, my other half at the time went, who's that then? I said, I've never heard of that comedian. Turns out that comedian was pretty much an open spot who had graduated to have I got news for you by a series of demographic boxes that they ticked and they weren't very good on it and and you sort of go if so what's the circuit for what is what is what is all the hard work that people do to become a comedian worth if actually that graduation doesn't then propel you onto television there's a whole different set of rules again nobody said that it was going to be fair and again I understand in a commercial environment, I actually just wish that the BBC would would allow, because it used to be that producers would producers would choose and different producers would use different people. Now all that all gets filtered up to a level of executives who want the same pool of talent to be chosen from. So what's wrong with the circuit is the monopoly that is held by a few agencies who are looking at making money and do great stuff for their acts and put good acts on. I'm not I'm not saying that most people on telly aren't good. 
but there's there could be more diversity you don't have to see this see the same people on the same three programs on telly that week you could have three people in those three different spots three different voices three different sets of jokes on the same subject and i just think and i'm not a lazy i think i'm a lazy but i i i resent people who get paid a lot of money at an executive level being that lazy and also lining the pockets of agencies who are not there to do anything that nourishes the circuit they're almost like vampires on the circuit who who sort of come and suck the good stuff out of it whilst when other people have done the hard work um so that i was going to ask you because the last question normally is if you had one bit of advice for someone starting their career now what would it be do you want to answer that or do you want to end it on that one gig gig as often as you can find your own voice speak in it for long enough don't get distracted by anything else 21 years later you might be a bitter old cunt in the bottom of the comedy store but you know at least you won't be working in an office that was toby i love talking to him about the manchester scene and after hearing about how the gigs are better paid up in manchester than they are in london it's really given me food for thought about whether i should stay in london where if i'm honest i've hit a bit of a wall in terms of progression also his words about finding his voice and his and a creative outlet when he was depressed and his marriage was falling apart i found really touching and inspiring and i really was humbled that he would share that with us so openly and so readily so if you found any value out of this or you found any comfort in what he said please do thank him and all the links to his social media accounts are in the show notes slash on my website which is simoncain.co.uk this podcast is part of my ongoing quest to talk to more promoters outside of london because as we all know the circuit is bigger than london and as much as the industry tends towards the fact that london is the hub for everything i think it's better that we cover more than just london and respect the circuit as the wider and more diverse scene that it is Speaking of, tomorrow, the 18th of February 2017, I will be doing a live Q&A panel with four promoters from the Midlands at the Leicester Comedy Festival in Pat's Pizzeria. Entry is free, so if you could come down to that and support me, please do. You can find all the details in the show notes and on my website and on the Leicester Comedy Festival website. Also, if you're still around on the 19th of February 2017, you can come watch my work in progress show at The Exchange at 9pm, again at the Leicester Comedy Festival. Both shows are free slash pay what you want on the way out. I'm really excited about this one. I had a really lovely time last year doing my show and I'm hoping for great things. My fingers are crossed. If you can support me in either of those things, please do. If you can't make either of those things but you know someone that can, please tell them about it because every little bit helps. And last year... I advertised the Q&A just through the podcast and we had about 40 people that came down, which is amazing. So if we can top that, I'd be massively happy and impressed. But anyway, you can show support for this podcast would be great. So if you can't come down physically, please do consider sharing the link for this episode to someone you think might value it. If you're new here, please hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do consider giving us an honest review in iTunes. And either way, please join the Facebook group, which is called Ask the Industry Podcast. And it's on Facebook, obviously. That's the best place to be able to ask all the future guest questions that you want to know, as well as find out who's coming on and any live events that we have coming up. You can also give me a donation towards the running costs of this show on my website, either via PayPal as a one-off donation or via Patreon as a ongoing donation. Every little bit helps, and I can't thank you enough for everything you do. But for now, I'm going to try. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for sharing the link. And thank you very much for donating if you do. 
and I'll see you all in about 15 days time. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.